Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Morrow, and I am with Morrow Family Medicine. We have offices in Cumming and in Milton, Georgia. At Mara Family Medicine, we utilize state-of-the-art technology as much as we possibly can, along with the old-fashioned care that you used to get back in the old days when you were growing up, to help to hopefully make you feel both cared for and appreciated. We realize that you do have many choices as to where you receive your care, and we hope you will get it at Mara Family Medicine, we really appreciate it when you do. I'm here in the studio, in our brand new studio at Renaissance Bank on Windward Parkway in Alpharetta, Georgia, with John Ray. John's still running the board. Hey, John. Hey, Dr. Jim. It, it's closer to your Milton office. It is. It's just right around the corner, and it's right. awesome to get here. I go right by Kentucky Fried Chicken, so it's perfect. <laughs> Sp- spoken like a professional medical uh, practitioner, right? <laughs> I'm a patient, too, if I nothing else. I, there you go. So we're here today, we're going to talk about Lyme disease, and before we get started, I want you to know that you can reach out to us. John's going to be fielding tweets and emails. You can tweet us at TouYourHealthMD, or you can send us an email at drjim, drjim, at touyourhealth.md. So that's right, today we're going to talk about Lyme disease, and I figure by the time I get through talking about Lyme disease, some of you will be shaking your heads and changing the dial metaphorically at least, certainly going to another website, because there's just a world of controversy about Lyme disease and people who are on one side of the equation, probably on both sides, feel very strongly about what they believe. The difference in the two, and we'll get to what the two are in a few minutes, the difference is science. So it's really pretty straightforward. Lyme disease, most people know, is an illness, is a tick-borne illness. It's caused by uh, the bite of an infected deer tick. It's caused by a bacterium. It's actually a spirochete. That's a word you don't hear every day. A spirochete called Borrelia burgdorferi. And nobody knows much about spirochetes, but one thing you might know is that syphilis is also caused by a spirochete. So not everybody knows that either. But it's an, an illness that is just not seen very often in Georgia. Uh, you do see some cases in Georgia, uh, but most of the people in Georgia who think they have Lyme disease don't. It's concentrated mostly in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. Lyme County, Connecticut, I believe it is, is the home of the original diagnosis of Lyme disease, and that's where the majority of the cases are found in New England. But a small spattering of them are found throughout the South. And in Georgia, each year there's a case or 10, something in that neighborhood. The identification of or diagnosis of Lyme disease is typically made when you have a known tick bite and you get a rash that's called erythema migrans, which means nothing, but it's a red streaky rash that can be just about anywhere. But that's the the limit of what it takes to make the official diagnosis of Lyme disease. If you know you had a tick bite and you have this fairly characteristic rash, then you may very well have a Lyme disease and you probably should be treated for Lyme disease. Now, what you hear about the rash with Lyme disease is you hear about the bullseye target lesion, target rash, and that kind of thing. And that happens, but it only happens in about 20% of cases. So you don't have to have the classic rash to have a diagnosis of Lyme disease or to have Lyme disease. 
Now, when it comes to making the official scientific, which I'm a big fan of, diagnosis for Lyme disease, the CDC recommends a two-tiered approach to a blood test. They do this blood test, and if it's positive, they do what's called a Western blot, which is a confirmation test. We use that sort of test to confirm positive results on a variety of different things. But when you get these results and you see these results, because patients these days like to get a copy of their lab results and they want to become little miniature sleuths and figure out exactly what's going on with them, that's fine. But they report a variety of different bands, they're called, on this report, and some are positive and some are negative. And there may be as many as 10 to 15 bands that are reported. But in order to have a positive test for Lyme disease, you must have five or more positive bands. I frequently see people that come into the office saying that they have Lyme disease, they have their lab test with them. They'll say, I've got Lyme disease, this other doctor told me I did. I've got positive tests right here, and one to three of these bands might be positive. Usually it's a couple. And they've been told they have Lyme disease, and they don't. Lyme disease requires five positive bands or five positive tests, if you will, on this multitude of tests that they do. And if you don't have five positive bands, you don't have Lyme disease, period. That's the end of that sentence. You just don't. This is completely wrong for physicians and clinicians to do. It's completely unfair to the patient. It can make the patient vulnerable to the absolute mountain of information that's available to them today and could make them believe that someday they would end up with what has been labeled as chronic Lyme disease. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, um, I have a problem with chronic Lyme disease because it's not a real entity, and the people who believe in, treat, make a living off of chronic Lyme disease will tell you that I'm not a Lyme literate physician. I'm not an LLMD. Well, I am a Lyme literate physician. I know about Lyme disease, and I know about the science of Lyme disease, and the truth is chronic Lyme disease is just a figment of someone's imagination. Now, getting back to Lyme disease, because we're going to cover chronic later, the treatment of Lyme disease is very, very simple, and it really is determined by the clinical manifestations of the disease. There's an antibiotic called doxycycline that is the preferred treatment for Lyme disease. It works against other illnesses you can get from a tick. You can use it for Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for example which also comes from ticks. But it's the classic treatment. Some people can't tolerate doxycycline. And if you can't, there are th two or three or four other choices. They're not as good, but they work. And they're probably easier to tolerate, to be honest with you, than doxycycline. It can give you some serious GI side effects. But when it comes to Lyme disease, your best bet is prevention. So how are you going to prevent Lyme disease? Well, obviously what you do is you want to try to prevent getting a tick on you. So you avoid areas that have a lot of ticks. And, of course, if you knew an area had a lot of ticks, you'd probably avoid it in the first place, so that's not as simple as it sounds. You can wear protective clothing. You can wear long sleeves, long pants, and so forth. Use a tick repellent. That's one that has DEET, D-E-E-T, in it. Uh, you can look frequently because the tick has to get on you and then also has to embed in you in order to give you the, the disease. So if you look frequently for ticks, then you can be more likely to, to avoid Lyme disease. If you bathe following activities outside, and that just sounds like a good idea in general to me, but if you bathe following outdoor activities, that's another way to help prevent this. And if you do some things to change your landscape, 
to try to keep t- the tick burden down, if you will, like cutting the grass, uh, doing that kind of thing, keeping deer out and that kind of thing. Now, there's, there's no evidence that prolonged treatment after the antibiotic doxycycline for usually 10 to 14 days does any good at all. Lyme disease is broken down into three stages, and in the early stage, you treat it and you go on. A lot of physicians will try to extend that to a month or six weeks, and that's a lot of antibiotic, and it can have its own set of problems. So if you treat that for 10 to 14 days when you actually do have a tick bite, you do have a rash, or you have a positive blood test with five positive bands, then you take the 10 days to two weeks of antibiotics and you're done, and that's really all you have to do. So I mentioned the stages of Lyme disease. Probably 80% of patients developed a characteristic rash of this erythema migrans. Now, that's not the target lesion, the bullseye, but some sort of rash like that. It's usually a single lesion, although in cases you can have more than one. And it's usually a rash that's in the neighborhood of seven to eight inches wide or long, although it can be as small as a couple of inches. And I mentioned earlier, only about 20% of people get the actual target lesion that you hear people talk about. And another 10 to 20% of people might get rashes in multiple locations. So if you have Lyme disease, what do you feel if you take the rash out of it? How do you feel? Well, it's, it's like a viral illness. It gives you the same symptoms that a viral illness can give you. It makes you tired. It makes you not want to do anything. You can have fever, chills, muscle aches, headache. You just have a general sense of ill being. You just don't feel well. There's really nothing more specific about acute early Lyme disease than that and the rash. Now, if you're not treated when you have early Lyme disease, then the bacteria, the spirochete, can make its way through your body in the lymph system or in the blood. And when that happens, then if you have not been treated, you can end up with what's called early disseminated Lyme disease. And that's really just what it sounds like. The bacteria is disseminated through your body, so you can have heart problems. You can develop a a thing called AV block, which is an electrical condition where the the nerve impulse to your chambers of your heart don't get there in the time they usually would, and it can alter your heart a little bit. Most people that have any sort of AV block never know they have it. If they know they have it, they never have a problem from it, but it can do that. You can get multiple rash lesions like I was talking about, and then you can get joint aches and muscle aches and even neurologic things. You can get meningitis from uh, Lyme disease. You can get a paralysis of one of the nerves in the face from Lyme disease. And if you continue on and you haven't been treated, the late-stage Lyme disease, which is different from chronic, but the late-stage Lyme disease can involve multiple joints having arthritis, and that means they're red or hot or swollen or tender or all the above. And then you can have very advanced neurologic symptoms with a thing called encephalomyelitis. Encephalomyelitis means that the brain is inflamed, the spinal cord is inflamed, the lining around them is inflamed. It's just it's a, a bad thing to have. It can give you cognitive issues. It can give you motor and sensory issues. And then you can also have what's called peripheral neuropathy that a lot of people are familiar with because of diabetes. But that's just an abnormal sensation in the feet and legs. Typically, it's in the lower extremities. But each of these stage Lyme disease, these are the diagnosis of these are made when you have these symptoms and a positive test for Lyme disease. You can't have these symptoms and have a negative Lyme test 
and think that you have Lyme disease because you don't if you don't have a positive test. You have something else which could be a million things causing these very similar symptoms. So that's the breakdown of Lyme disease as it presents in the physician's office, as patients bring it to the office and ask about it and how we treat it and what you should expect from it. I do want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's been a pleasure doing these to this point. We're looking forward to more. This episode of To Your Health is brought to you by Mara Family Medicine, where we do have a walk-in hour every morning. We start our day at 7.30 in the morning, and for the first hour of the day, you're free to, free to walk in. You don't need an appointment. If you decide one evening there's something you need to get checked, whether it's a cough, cold, bellyache, rash, doesn't matter what it is, you just show up at the office, either one, Cumming or Milton, between 7.30 and 8.30, and we will see you, and we're happy to do it. That way, there's never a day you can't be seen at Mara Family Medicine. We're not going to tell you on Monday that we'll see you on Friday. It just doesn't happen. Now, if you like the podcast, and I hope you do, number one, I'd love to hear from you about that. But be sure and hit the subscribe button on the app that you're listening on so that you can be sure and get updated when another episode of To Your Health is available. So now we're going to talk about chronic Lyme disease, the pain that is brought to the office all too often by people who have been told that's what they have. This isn't something people just decide as a rule. They've been told that it's what they have. And I have a problem with the people that tell them that, uh, that I'll talk about here in a little bit, I'm pretty sure. So the symptoms that people have when they think they have chronic Lyme disease are very, very vague. They might have chronic pain. They almost always have fatigue. They might have some issues with cognition, trouble focusing, concentrating, short-term memory, that kind of thing. And this might even be the kind of thing where you walk in the kitchen, can't remember why you walked in the kitchen, and that's anything in the world but a medical problem, but it might be something that happens. And they can even have behavioral symptoms. They can have uh, irritability. They can have lethargy. They can have uh, symptoms where they are not wanting to do things they usually like to do and so forth. Clinicians, because it's hard to call them physicians, although a lot of them are, who subscribe to the idea that chronic Lyme disease is a real entity will misread these lab tests that I mentioned earlier, either intentionally or through ignorance, no way to know either one, and they'll believe and tell the patient that they have Lyme disease when in fact they only have two bands that are positive and so forth. All too often, they'll explain to the patient that the only adequate treatment for their symptoms is long-term antibiotic treatment with or without some other very involved, complex, almost always wasteful treatment that only they can provide. So I'm going to say this not just about Lyme disease but about life in general. If you go to a physician and he tells you that you have XYZ disease and the only way to be treated for it is to buy something whether it's goods or services, from him and through his practice, run. Run as fast as you can and get away because this person is not, does not have your best interest in mind. Probably the most recognized and contentious, if you will, part of this debate is whether or not protracted choruses of antibiotics have any place in the treatment of Lyme disease. I mentioned earlier there's no science behind it, but I have known patients that travel great lengths 
to be treated, spend tens of thousands of dollars to be treated for chronic Lyme disease. It's, it's embarrassing to me as a physician. It's unbelievable to me that people would do this and take advantage of these people who have some sort of real misery going on, but it's not Lyme disease. As you can already tell, I'm sure the dialogue about chronic Lyme provokes strong feelings. It does in me. It's been more acrimonious than any other aspect of Lyme disease and probably than most aspects of medicine in general. People who have been diagnosed with this condition have experienced incredible personal suffering, whether Lyme disease is responsible for their experience or not. And a lot of the patients with this diagnosis share the idea that the medical community has failed them. It's failed to adequately explain and treat their illnesses. Well, a lot of the symptoms that these people have are untreatable. A lot of them are that they're tired, and there's not always a medical reason to be tired. A lot of them are that they just don't feel great. And as much as I'd love to make every person that walks into my office feel good, it's just not possible. And there's a huge community of both physicians and what most people refer to as alternative treatment providers. There's another word for that that starts with a Q. And they, they have a very politically active community. They're advocating uh, against Board, medical boards disciplining uh, physicians who are treating these patients. They advocate uh, against medical liability or medical legal liability for the unorthodox practices that people uh, conduct. They would like to have insurance coverage mandated for the extended antibiotic treatments. And I'm talking about IV antibiotics in a lot of cases. I'm not talking about taking a pill once a day for Four months. I'm talking about doing IV antibiotics, going to a facility, getting hooked up to an IV, getting exposed to the possible, almost probable side effects that can come from long-term antibiotic treatment. And so there's this whole community that is actively advocating for that. The same community argues that Lyme disease is underdiagnosed and is responsible for a long list of illnesses. And they believe that the general scientific and public community, public health community, excuse me, is either ignoring or worse, trying to cover up evidence about chronic Lyme disease. And there's just not even an imaginable reason why anybody would do this. This is not something that big pharma is involved in. And people love bringing big pharma into the uh, controversy of of what people are trying to do just for the sole purpose of making more money. But the amount of information that's out there and the the number of people that are out there is very confusing. It's very difficult to navigate. It's a situation where people who are searching for a reason, understandably, for why they don't feel like they think they should, are trying to to get some help and they're just having a hard time doing it. And people see them coming and they see their pocketbooks and their credit cards, and they take full advantage of it. The entire concept of chronic Lyme disease has already, for the great most part, been rejected. 
clinical practice guidelines, which we as physicians uh, go by for many, many things that we treat. These are guidelines that are based on years and years of scientific evidence that tell us whether or not we should be doing this, that, or the other. These guidelines discourage the diagnosis of chronic Lyme, and they recommend against treating these people in the ways that I've already mentioned. Both national and state public health bodies agree that this should not be done. And if you look at doctors as a whole, it's probably 2% of physicians and clinicians in general who will take on a diagnosis of chronic Lyme and, and try to bring a patient through what can be a very arduous treatment cycle. Now, along with the things that I mentioned already, a lot of patients will have rheumatologic problems, not just the neurologic things that I mentioned and the orthopedic things, but a neurologic problem. And, and a lot of times when somebody has a diagnosis of something rheumatological, whether it's Sjogren's or rheumatoid arthritis or even you can include fibromyalgia in that, I'm sure, they're misdiagnosed as having Lyme disease. And they have some fairly treatable problem, but that's not being treated because people are concentrating on the possibility that it's Lyme disease when, in fact, there's just no way on earth that it's Lyme disease. Some patients have thought they had Lyme disease when actually they had multiple sclerosis or ALS, dementia even. But the, the bottom line is that there's just no science behind the idea of chronic Lyme. No study has ever shown a link between these vague symptoms and Lyme disease. The only information that I found, even with an infamous Google search that my patients love so much, these, this information is found on non-medical websites. Any website of any scientific value, those that really report actual scientific studies and not just anecdotal evidence, somebody said they had this and they had these symptoms, they reveal absolutely no data supporting chronic Lyme. I think the best way to describe the symptoms of what is felt by some to be chronic Lyme disease is that just, they're just the symptoms of life. As you go through your life, you will frequently find that you are tired for a period of time. You'll find that your back hurts for a period of time. You'll find that you have a headache for a period of time. You'll find that you have trouble concentrated for a period of time. That does not mean that you have some diagnosable condition. It means that you don't feel good. And I can promise you, if you live long enough, you're going to have plenty of times when you just don't feel good. These things can happen to anyone and do happen to a huge percentage of people in their everyday living of life. So I encourage you, if you have these symptoms, see a physician who will have an honest, open conversation with you about what you could have. And if someone starts to try to steer you down the road to chronic Lyme disease, get two more opinions before you do anything because you can spend a life savings, you can spend a crazy amount of time, and you can have just the heartbreak of feeling like you have some condition that cannot be fixed. And I encourage every one of you to not go down that road and I welcome your emails. The email is drjim at toyourhealth.md. I welcome your tweets at toyourhealthmd. I'm not afraid to get information and messages from people about 
this podcast because I think it's an important thing that people need to know. And they need to know that what they have is not some dread disease that requires everything they ever earned to try to make it better. John, that's what I got on Lyme disease. Uh, you came on pretty bold there. <laughs> I've been told that before. <laughs> well, well, sometimes that's what it takes to get the message through, you know, when people have been operating under misconceptions. Well, it, it is, and it does, and it's one of those things that I really get, for lack of a better phrase, been out of shape about because I've seen so many patients that felt like that's what they had and they've been told and told and spent money and spent money and they don't feel any better. And it's 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 just heart-wrenching when you see some of these cases come in the door. So question on the physicians that are prescribing their own treatment, shall we say, that you were advocating strongly against. Right. Um, so how do they get away with that? They're licensed pra- practitioners. Well, like I mentioned, the the chronic Lyme disease community has advocated against and been pretty successful advocating against people doing uh, any sort of uh, license check or or suspending anyone or anything like that when they do this. Another thing is the the patients are not reporting this because they're going there thinking they're going to be helped. And they're told early on this is a real uphill battle. So when it fails, they're not shocked, and they don't feel like they've been put upon. So they're not going anywhere and raising cane about it. And insurance doesn't cover it, so insurance doesn't play a part. Insurance, I've never known insurance to cover these sort of things. So there's no avenue there to do anything about it. And it's a free country, and they're not doing anything illegal. It's stupid. It's callous. It's unthinking. It's not fair to patients. It's not scientific, but it's not illegal. Yet. Yet. (laughs) Gotcha. So an unrelated question. You ready? Yeah. This this comes from me. Okay. Are you ready? Still ready? I'm still. I'm even (laughs) more ready. Do I need to start the music? (laughs) Um, So there was a survey that was released from the American Medical Association here uh, several days ago. And what it said was employed physicians, so physicians that are employed by either hospital-owned practices or, you know, privately held maybe corporate practices, they exceed the number who own their own practice. So you own your own practice, you know, talk about this trend. Talk about why you own your own practice versus why you aren't working for someone else. Why do you go through the headaches of entrepreneurship? Well, I think that's a good question. I don't agree with many things the AMA does, but I agree with them on this. It, it is a, a problem, in my opinion. The big difference between, let's take, hospital-owned practice and, and what my practice is, a privately-owned practice, the biggest difference to patients in going to one versus the other is that a hospital-owned practice, they're able to charge facility fees and a variety of other charges that really make care a good bit more expensive, uh, a serious bit more expensive in many cases. They have, and, and they're not doing anything wrong, they're just able to charge differently, and so the overall charge is different. And in the old days, the old days being pre-Obamacare, the patient typically would have a flat copay and they would pay that and it'd be done. 
But nowadays, patients pay a percentage a lot of times of the bill, and they certainly have deductibles to meet and so forth and so on now. And so if the overall bill is more expensive, in some way at some point, it's going to cost the patient more money. The reason that I choose to put up with the headaches of owning my own practice, and there are plenty, number one is because the pleasures and benefits far outweigh the headaches. But the other is if I want to change a rug in the waiting room, that rug's going to be changed. If I want to do anything, I want to put something on the walls, I'm going to put something on the walls. If I want to hire a person because I think they're a good fit for our practice, I'll hire them. And if I don't want them to work there because they're not, they shall not work there. And I'm just that straightforward about it. I I like the idea of having my own practice for a lot of reasons, but just having the ability to do things as I like them because if you know anybody that knows me, they'll tell you that there's my way and there's the wrong way. That's the way a lot of doctors are. I think I said that in the very first podcast. And and so if I want to do something a certain way, that's the way it's going to be done. And and I I think it's worked well. It gives me the ability to treat people well. And I mean not medically but socially to be nice to them, to be sure that my staff is nice to them. And I'm blessed with staff. My goodness, the six providers at Mara Family Medicine are supported by an unbelievable staff uh, in the front office, back office, lab, everywhere. It's just a phenomenal group. But that didn't happen by accident. That happened because we wanted it to be that way. We directed it to be that way. And we do what it takes to be sure we keep it that way. So that's a long answer to a short question. So what are to me the patient I know it's there's an advantage for me as a uh uh that that you're running the show therefore you know you you shield me from a lot of things that may happen in a hospital owned practice corporate owned practice but what are what are some of the advantages that I have because I'm I'm coming to you as a patient and you and you own the practice. Well, I think one is that you can expect the things that I just mentioned to be the case because when you become more corporate, even hospital owned, the people who manage the practice are usually a little bit farther away from things and they they're not there to see them every day. They're not going to be aware of every single thing that goes on and so things may not go as well as they otherwise could. Another thing is that I am um, – I, I put my email address on my business card. It's the only email address that I use. And I tell patients all the time how it should be, especially if they're new patients. I explain how it should go. You should call us and expect to be called back in what you think is a reasonable period of time. You should be treated – honestly and kindly uh, and with accurate information. And if it ever doesn't go like you think it should go, you send me an email and I'll fix it because I can. And so I I think, you know, the, the reasons to come to a practice like ours are not really medical reasons because I think the physicians that practice in hospital loan practices and corporate practices, most of them are fantastic docs. They're great docs. But when it comes to the other things that have to do with the quality of your visit, 
they can be handled a lot better and controlled a lot better in an environment like ours than a corporate or hospital owned practice. Gotcha. Another thing I'll mention too is when it comes to the hospital especially being involved is lab work is a lot cheaper if you do it through having it drawn in our office and sent to Quest or LabCorp or Spectrum, whoever it might be, as opposed to having it run either in an office where they're doing lab work and trying to bill for it themselves because you may very well get a bill after the insurance or in the hospital lab. The hospital lab's a very expensive venture. They have worlds of equipment and staff to pay for, and the billing's very different. And so lab work is a lot cheaper in our setting as well. So when you when you refer out to other practices, do you typically refer to uh, physician-owned private practices or or the larger practices, or do you do you discriminate discriminate or uh, no, does I it refer, depend, depend on the physician? I, I, it depends on the physician. I refer my patients to the best guy for their problem. Okay, I could I do not care where they are. Gotcha. It's, it's purely a matter of this is the guy you need to see. And sometimes I'll say this practice has seven guys in it and see any one of them. They're all great. Or I might say this practice has seven guys in it. See one of these three. And I'm very honest and open with the patients about that kind of thing, who they should see and so forth. And that's something else you might not see in a hospital or corporate-owned practice because they're not wanting to step on toes. And I just frankly don't care. <laughs> Well, that's helpful. So I, you know, I think there's, I'm, I don't think I'm the only one that is in the dark on some of this stuff and doesn't know what's going on behind the curtain. So it's nice that you explain this for our listeners. Yeah, happy to. So I want to talk about what we're going to do next time. Next time is going to be June the 12th because we're doing podcasts on the second and fourth Wednesdays at one o'clock live on North Fulton Business Radio X, but also as a podcast for you to listen to whenever you might like to, and as many times as you might like to. You can listen to them multiple times. But on June 12th, we're going to have a special guest. I've not had a guest to this point, and I'm excited about that. Maybe I won't have to talk the entire half hour. That'd be nice. But from GI North in Cumming, Georgia, we're going to have Dr. Simon Cofrancesco. Simon is a gastroenterologist and a very, very good one who I have a lot of faith in, and he's going to come on. We're going to talk about colon cancer and colon cancer screening, why pooping in a box is not an alternative to colonoscopies. So that's June the 12th on To Your Health. And, John, I believe that's all I've got. You Sam, good? Sam, I'm good. Ladies and gentlemen, that is again. To Your Health, and thank you for listening. We will see you June the 12th. <laughs>